Now the first two foundations are um, done, body and feeling. So we are coming to mind, third foundation. In Pali, Kaya Nupasana is mindfulness of the body. Vedana Nupasana, mindfulness of feeling. And this is Chitta Nupasana. And Chitta consists of all aspects of mind. So we'll read this first and see what the Sutta says. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as unaffected by hate. The word lust can be substituted for the word greed. Um, sometimes it's translated as lust, sometimes as greed. It's um, Greed, hate, and delusion are our three um, roots of evil, which um, are very much um, based within. So these are mentioned here. Third one, if he understands mind affected by delusion as affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as unaffected by delusion. I'll talk about those three first. Delusion has a particular meaning in the Buddhist terminology and that meaning is the delusion of self the misunderstanding that we think we are an entity called me uh, which has an inner core and a substance from which all this me arises that's called delusion in Buddhist terminology and it is the generator of greed and hate. So to see um, oneself with a mind affected by delusion is certainly not easy because unless we are enlightened, our mind is always affected by delusion. So we wouldn't know the difference. So this presupposes, this particular statement presupposes that we have already come to states of non-delusion. Now the, um, this, the uh, opposite in, uh, in terminology would be wisdom or insight, either panya or vipassana, so that we would know the difference. In other words, we would be aware of the fact that we have been able to go along without any self-concept for even the shortest period of time, so that we become aware of such when it does arise again. However, for an ordinary, everyday kind of person, that would not exist, that type of knowing, because they haven't come to that non-self-concept yet. If we have, we would know the difference. We would realize how it feels to be without self and how it feels with self. And obviously, an Arahant never had that self-concept, so he never has a mind affected by delusion, but he would also never have a mind affected by lust or greed or by hate, because those two are the effects of that particular cause. Now, 
when we when we realize that our mind is affected by greed and our or our mind is affected by hate we would be able to realize that the mind is reaching for something it's either reaching out to resist and reject which comes un under the heading of hate and it doesn't have to be violent hate hate is the overall description of all that which we don't like and that can even be the weather very mild naturally very mild hate but still under that heading so we are reaching out to get rid of in other words trying to push it away and if it is lust or greed it is a mind that wants to accumulate it's uh, trying to possess trying to get so we don't even need our labeling process just yet here if we are mindful enough to realize when the mind is doing one of those two things pushing or pulling that um which gives one a feeling in the mind of disquiet naturally hate and greed are never quiet never peaceful it's a feeling of disquiet and it's certainly a feeling of being at um not at ease of wanting something and the first noble truth that the buddha proclaimed and the second one the first one is that there is dukkha and the second one that it only has one cause and that's wanting craving so we could actually um put these two together and say that we are aware of a mind that has dukkha because both of these are generating dukkha are you um uh, aware now what dukkha means steam yeah okay um it just occurred to me that you wouldn't have heard it before <laughs> except here <laughs> yes um so although our labeling in the meditation process will help us tremendously to realize that when this is happening in daily life because we become acquainted with this um aspect of ourselves where we actually give a name to what we're doing in the mind we don't have to come this far when we watch mind we can stay with the um disquiet with the um mind which is not at ease with the mind which is either trying to push or to pull and we don't even have to come to the point of saying aha hate greed but we can say we can see this dukkha that's also enough and when we see that dukkha we may have enough sense to realize that we do not have to produce our own dukkha however the labeling will help us also to realize that the dukkha has a cause and it's always the same cause wanting something either wanting to get it or wanting to get rid of it which is either greed or hate so when we become very 
mindful of our own mind states, which the labeling process in the meditation is supposed to help us to do, this can be extremely um, worthwhile in daily life to be able to let go of that. We've hidden delusion. With the delusion state, um, we can use this word delusion in not its ultimate sense, the ultimate sense which I've already explained just now, but we could use the word delusion in a sense of more everyday life where we see ourselves all of a sudden misinterpreting, um, reacting to something which is in our own mind but projecting it outward. Now, all that is delusion, obviously. So, while the ultimate sense is definitely delusion of self, always in the terminology, this particular aspect of mind is also very important to um, be able to um, notice. We are projecting outward instead of staying with the things that they really are. We are uh, imagining, we are um, fantasizing. All these are deluded states mainly misinterpreting, which is a very common mistake that all of us make. Misinterpreting other people's intentions, misinterpreting states of being in ourselves and others, and so forth. And that misinterpretation is, of course, caused by that basic delusion of self. Because the Buddha said that all our viewpoints and all our opinions are wrong because all of them are uh, colored by this self-delusion. But since it is very difficult for us to see that self-delusion as a factor in our um, daily living where it colors what we're doing, it is um, a step on the way to become aware of interpretations and projections. What would you say to women, um, you know, who who don't have a sense of self, um, of a healthy sort of sense of self? Um, okay, they're not, um, you know, I would say with it from its ultimate point of view at all, but that cripples them. Yes. Um, it's more uh, probably um, a sense of inferiority. And that sense of inferiority is unfortunately just as much a sense of self as a sense of superiority. They're both equally deluded. Um, and in sense of inferiority needs to be balanced back to a sense of in on the middle by showing people uh, a certain abilities that they didn't pay attention to that they have or a certain good things about themselves which they didn't think about so that they can get a little more in the balanced state. Whereas a person who has a sense of superiority, of course, is very hard to deal with. And uh, it's not so easy to show them that they're just the same like everybody else. With people who have an inferiority complex, it's a little easier to show them good things about themselves. Both of us are deluded states of self. You know, either not I'm not as good as or I'm better than. Both are the same thing. And people who have that, the inferiority one, 
um, of course, they find it difficult to practice because they start out with the idea of, well, I'm not good enough to practice, so I'm, you know, not capable of that type of thing. Yes, and, you know, psychologists um, have, or ones that, you know, I've been dealing with, they have this attitude that if people don't have this sense of self, they're not ready for meditation. Mm. And, you know, I don't feel that mm. myself, but I can't get through to them. Um, what I do feel yes. about it, you know, because I think that that people would be helped tremendously. Well, I, it depends, you know, how strongly they're affected detrimentally by this particular difficulty. If they're very strongly affected, they do need, uh, probably, I mean, I'm just guessing, mm-hmm. a bit of therapy first. If it's just the ordinary kind of inferiority complex, which we all suffer from here and there, then and now, not always, but some, sometimes. And if they have it a little more exaggerated, certainly the practice of the Dhamma would help them. I think it depends on the strength of the difficulty. You know, if the difficulty is very strong, maybe they do need that, something else first. You know. Where were we? I'm tracked it. Oh, yes. Okay, anything else about hate, greed? and delusion. Any question, I mean, or any comment on anything? Other than that we wish we wouldn't that didn't have it or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Don't go into it anymore. Mm. Mm. Yes. The more often you drop it, the, the easier it stays away. The, the mind has that uh, habitu- uh, habitual way of coping with things. If you allow it to become quite um, open and, and uh, spread itself around this particular delusion, then it makes itself at home and doesn't really want to go away. So the quicker one drops it, the better. I don't bother to investigate it. No. Unless you can't get rid of it. Oh, I'm fed up. I'm bored to tears. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, if if it has such strength that even when you tell it, go away. Oh, yes. It does work. Okay, fine. He understands contracted mind as contracted, distracted mind as distracted. Um, Now the translator himself talked about contracted mind as lethargy, um, a, a lazy mind. But it's not always understood as such. Contracted mind is very often understood as selfish mind because it contracts to only this one person. It has no interest in anything which is either outside others or universal. It is contracted to self. 
And it actually, when one becomes rather attentive to these mind states, one can feel it as being very narrow. We say narrow-minded, well, that's a contracted mind, narrow-minded. Somebody who stays along certain ways of thinking and you can't shift them. And these, that narrow-mindedness is usually based also on personal wishes and personal uh, opinions. So contraction is not always lethargy. It is that too, naturally. It is a, a mind which is tired and uh, doesn't want to exert itself. So it contracts. It um, becomes unable to be smooth and um, uh, expansive and generous. But it is also the selfish mind. It's also contracted mind. And we can feel it in us. Um, experiences, by the way, no matter where they come from, are only experiences when we feel them. Everything that we really experience is something that we can feel inside. And our way towards wisdom is the understood experience. And the understanding is helped by knowing the Buddha's words, but the experience we have to have ourselves. So this is the contrary. With distracted mind, everybody knows forward and backward and sideways. Huh? <laughs> it's an old friend. <laughs> we know it. Um, he understands exalted mind as exalted. Now here the translator, N stands for the translator, that's Jnana Moli, English monk, long dead, uh, describes exalted as a state of the jhana, as one of the um, meditative absorption states. And um, <coughs> one can, of course, describe it as such. But it can also be a mind which is to fully and totally imbued with loving kindness and compassion. And a loving kindness and compassion which is totally outgoing, does not have any particular person in mind or in focus, but it's just so <coughs> generous and expansive and um, pliable that it just has only that state in it, loving kindness and compassion, either one or both. It also can be called an exalted state of mind. So obviously we know when we get into the meditative absorption that we change our state of consciousness mm -hmm. and also we know that when we feel love and compassion that we um, have a state of mind which is somewhat, shall I say, above the usual state where we are concerned with our own, uh, own benefits because that is no longer concerned with one's own benefits. One is concerned with giving, loving kindness, compassion, is giving out. So that too can be called an exalted state of mind. Well, obviously, the uh, mindfulness of one's mind states has all these and all its um, connotations of these states within, right? So we have greed, hate, and delusion, we have contraction and dis distraction. We have exalted and unexalted. No, not exalted. 
Is that English? Unexalted? Unexalted. Oh, well, all right. <laughs> um, they, uh, well, a state of mind which is uh, ordinary, which I usually call the marketplace kind of mind, where we have the um, total dichotomy in the mind, the dichotomy of this is yours and this is mine, this is what I want, this is what I don't want, this was yesterday, this is going to be tomorrow, I like it, I don't like it, um, it's good, it's bad, and so on. It's that constant duality, which is the ordinary state of mind, the everyday kind of state of mind which we use in our business dealings. We can't do any other way because there's no other way to do business dealings. And it's interesting to know that people who do know other states of mind then often, to their own detriment, try to use those other states of mind in business dealings. It's impossible. It just can't be done. Because business is the marketplace, and it needs a marketplace kind of mind. And the only thing to do is when one's mind has gone beyond those kinds of things is to leave the marketplace. <laughs> and not go back there. So, um, yes? I was just wondering about the extremes of those states, um, like manic depression. Um, I don't think the Buddha ever dealt with that kind of thing. It's never mentioned. It never dealt with states of mind which are not what we call normal. I mean, the Buddha said we're all not normal, all of us, because we're totally deluded, so we can't be normal. But what we call normal, he only dealt with that kind of mind. We never dealt with things that were not. Because, you see, when a person is no longer on that level that we are on, which is, you know, low enough as it is, um, how do we communicate? And the Buddha communicated on that kind of state, uh, in, in this world, in a, on, a, on two levels. However, he also communicated without words, of course, with people who were uh, what we call mad but that was his own personal ability. You know, so they got out of their mad states and then he was able to teach them. But with exalted and unexalted states of mind, that's exactly the kind of things that we get without having, you know, uh, any um, aberrations in the mind. The next one is the surpassed mind and, uh, surpassed and the unsurpassed. Now, the uh, translator, again, presumably, calls the Sabbath state the state of jhana, yes. The, um, oh, in realization also. The word surpassed here by, is meant by the translator to denote either a state in the, of mind in the um, meditative absorptions again, in the jhanas, or in one of the states of liberation, nibbanic state. Um, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if we want to use this in our daily living as something uh, useful to watch our own mind, we can 
again presumed to that word surpass to mean also surpassing the dichotomy, surpassing our own selfishness and egocentricness and becoming um, universally uh, attentive. In other words, when we look, for instance, at some dukkha that's happening to us and we're getting all upset about it and we're getting worried about it and maybe we're even getting self-pity about it for ourselves or we're trying to get a run away from it or whatever it is. If we then, well, this is obviously a very unexalted state of mind. Uh, it also has very unexalted uh, results, namely unhappiness. However, if we then look at the Buddha's teaching and say, aha, the Buddha said dukkha is everywhere. Existence is dukkha. And uh, it's only because I want something. And that too is a universal problem. And he also said, if I dropped the wanting, I could uh, drop the dukkha. And uh, if I did that, I would be following the Buddha's teaching, where I'm obviously surpassing the ordinary state of mind. So by going back to the teaching and seeing the universality, which applies to everyone, we are surpassing our daily um, and ordinary states of mind, which are constantly putting us back into unhappiness and um, uh, dissatisfaction. So that too could be construed to mean surpassing, surpassing that which is ordinary. Okay, is that clear? Any questions on that? The next one is the concentrated mind and the unconcentrated mind. Well, I think that's no big deal, huh? Everybody knows how to know when they're concentrated and when they're not concentrated. Um, however, if we're talking about meditation here, if we are concentrated and then say to ourselves, boy, am I concentrated today? Well, that's the end of that, isn't it? That's the end of the concentration. So it would be better to do that... Um, in retrospect, to realize that I had a concentrated state of mind and that's why I was able to have a change of consciousness or an experience which was insightful or whatever it was. Um, if it applies to our daily living, it's interesting because we can, and in daily living at times, also become very much aware of the fact that we're totally unconcentrated. I think everybody's had the experience of reading a book, a page of a book, coming to the bottom and not having a clue what it said, realizing totally unconcentrated mind. Mind went all over the place instead of paying attention to what I was reading. So then, making a determination, I'm going to be concentrated, putting the attention back on that page and actually knowing what it says. So these things do apply to both, to our meditative states, as the translator says, to the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, but it also applies to our states of mind in daily living. And mindfulness is, of course, a state of mind which is sharpened in the meditation, which is trained in the meditation. But 
it needs to be continued in daily living and it becomes so habitual in daily living you can't actually do anything except that particularly watching one's mind even if one doesn't pay any attention to how the feet are going down the steps if the mind is playing tricks at that time to know the mind states is um, the way to reduce or eliminate all unhappy states. Then as long as we know what the mind is doing, we can choose whether we want to keep it going like that or do something else with the mind. So our mind states are really extremely important. And then he knows a liberated mind is liberated, an unliberated mind is unliberated. Now here we have to really um, say, he doesn't give any um, footnotes for it, that this refers to the um, reviewing knowledge. The reviewing knowledge is a, a step which is done after what is called path and food. Now, I'm using very much uh, terminology of the Buddhist terminology. The path moment is the moment when a person has either the first, second, third, or fourth time the experience of Nibbana. That's called path moment. The fruit moment is following that, the realization of what has been achieved. And reviewing knowledge is the review of the defilements which are still there and which have been eliminated. So here, when we talk about liberated mind and unliberated mind, we would, um, at this point in time, know ourselves to be unliberated. However, when it comes to path and fruit, the mind would then know that there has been a moment of liberation but that there are still things to be done. So this is what this also refers to, again, the meditative states. In our own daily attention to the mind, if we know ourselves to be unliberated, we would always be on guard that we don't make bad karma. That would be our... our attempt at watching an unliberated mind. See, an unliberated mind is a mind that is imbued with self. So, every ordinary person has it. It's not a, a, a value uh, system that everybody's got it. However, the only thing to do with that unliberated mind is to be able to see that making good karma will help it to purify itself. That purification system which leads it then towards liberation. Good karma is liberation. Uh, good karma is purifying, sorry. Um, the meditation itself is also purifying. Every single moment of concentration is one moment of purification because we can't have any negative uh, thoughts and, and negative reactions at the time of concentration. So the unliberated and the liberated mind con concerns particularly the reviewing knowledge after the um, path and proof moment.
but we can use it as an Yes, that is uh, probably the one I we took we uh, had in the last course, no, in the ten-day course. Yes. yes. So we have here uh, we are here concerned with our mindfulness on mind states, and um, while our labeling system does help us in the meditation to do that, it has to become habitual in daily living also, the labeling, because then we become the choosers rather than the victims. And in this way he abides contemplating mind as mind in himself, or he abides contemplating mind as mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind in himself and externally. So the footnote says that only by influence for reflection or by using the knowledge of others' minds if he possesses it. Well, using the knowledge of others' minds is a very dicey thing to do because most minds are rather unpurified. So it's not such a wonderful thing to do. But contemplating one's own mind in oneself and contemplating mind externally I have to admit that I um, uh, interpret it entirely different. Uh, not looking at other people's minds. I mean, this is a parlor game which is really not useful uh, for most people anyway. Um, when we, for instance, hear a sound or see a sight, which is something which is happening externally because the uh, sound is external to us and the sight is external to us. And our um, ear and eye are connecting through the ear or eye consciousness, which means hearing or seeing results. From that, we can see how thinking arises, which is then the reaction to that. Now, obviously, that's in within ourselves but it is caused by outside triggers. And to see the outside triggers, how they cause us then to react, is also an aspect of mindfulness which will give us a great deal of insight into ourselves. And here in this um, um, environment, uh, very useful to do, nothing is disturbing here very much. Um, you hear a bird sound and uh, First of all, if you're outside, you will try and see the bird. That's the first thing. What was that? Oh, which one? Oh, yeah, maybe that one there. And then the mind will, will look at, uh, then, then the eye will look at the bird, and you've had not only the sound then, but also the uh, sight of it, and then the mind will start telling stories about the bird. So it is very interesting to become acquainted with one's um, way of being totally dependent upon sense contacts. Now, obviously, we don't have to deny sense contacts, but we have to learn not to be dependent on them and not to react um, instinctively, but by choice. One thing I discovered today was when I was doing that, um, almost immediately after I 
I could, oh, okay, it's a bird. It was like I watched my mind kind of catalog and it kind of um, mm -hmm. spit out the, the other times I've seen a bird. Mm. You know, like there's always seems to be a memory that wants to come up. Yes. And mm. this I, I know because I've done a lot of um, sense memory exercises because I've been asking. So right. we would do this a lot. So I know that that happens. But what I noticed then was that a lot of times there'll be a mind state attached to it. And it's such a subtle thing. It's like it happens without almost even knowing it. And then suddenly you're in this mind state. Because, because of that memory that has come back. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But it was really... It happens very often with smell also. Yeah. You smell something, all of, back, all of a sudden you're back in Calcutta. Yes, well, this is where mindfulness, this absolute and utter mindfulness, um, rescues you from all that. See, now utter mindfulness would be that the sound remains a sound. And that's all. Now, that's a very interesting way of practice. The sound is just the sound. It's no longer bird. It's no longer where does it come from. It's no longer I've heard that sound before and that must have been a similar bird. And although I wasn't here then, maybe they have those birds also somewhere else and all the rest of it. But just sound only. And the same, of course, goes for sight. Um, with sight, even more difficult. Because with sight, what the eye can see is only shape and color. That's all the eye can see. The rest is all mind. The minute the mind says leaf, it's mind. It's not the eye. The eye can't see a leaf. The eye can see green and the shape of it. That's all. Now that's very, very difficult to stop the mind from responding. And all that is based on memory. Because we were told that is a leaf. <coughs> we were told when we were very small, this is a leaf. Because we used to also say, what is that? And so it's a leaf. So now the mind says, ah, a leaf. And then, of course, the mind says, quite pretty, actually. Does it smell? Oh, no. It doesn't smell at all. Oh, these Australian uh, natives don't smell, do they? I wonder if that's an Australian native. I haven't seen that on me. You're often running for the for the next half hour, you know. <laughs> so with the sound, it's uh, even a little easier. With the sight, it's very difficult. But it's well worth a um, an experiment. And when you have made the experiment and have actually been able to stop the mind at some point or other you will see that peacefulness is guaranteed. The lack of peacefulness comes from our reactions to our sense content. You try it out and see. So I have to interpret it externally in that manner because I do not um, like to pay attention to the fact that, of course, it is possible uh, to, you know, also know what other people are thinking, but then also you have that possibility of misinterpretation and that sort of thing. Oh, no. mm. i just ask a question on this um, contemplating mind externally and contemplating mind internally. 
David Yoke's code uh, just the seeing and seeing images without light without uh, differentiating or anything. When I read that passage, that's what came to mind. But that's, that was the real meaning mm -hmm. the seeing the mind externally. Mm. And seeing that the image is actually being seen by the mind and not by my mind. If it's by my mind, then I'm back on the internal thing again, all the labeling stuff. But if, if the mind, if an exercise is given to contemplate the images that are seen, are actually seen by mind and not labeling it as my mind, then that's like seeing external, like seeing external minds. You, you got yourself into a complete bind there <laughs> because the mind doesn't see a thing. The eye sees, the mind interprets. The mind is constantly interpreting. So when I use them, as I say, I'm using the word externally for this process of the eye. I mean, you have to have eyes, right? Seeing an object, whichever it may be and immediately realizing then, watching this process, that the mind is interpreting. First comes, actually what comes first is a feeling. We very often don't notice it because it's neutral. You see, if you see a green leaf, I mean, the feeling that arises from that is neutral. You know, you don't have any great desire for this green leaf, nor do you have any great uh, resistance or hate for it. So it's a neutral feeling. The next thing which arises is very noticeable. It's a perception. It says leaf. Naming. Perception is naming. So we don't have any problem knowing that. That's what we're doing. And then the mind reacting, saying, oh, well, this is not interesting. Or telling a old story about leaves. So what he's seeing, then, is the eye... I mean, obviously, I mean, the eye, E-Y-E, is not the thing that's actually doing the seeing. No, it's the eye consciousness that's doing the seeing. I think we'll get to that in a minute. That comes a little later. But it's the eye consciousness, the EYE consciousness, yeah. <laughs> that is doing the seeing, yes. But it's a mind which is doing the knowing. You see, I always, I always explain it this way. I show you this, you know it's a clock. I have no problem knowing that this is a clock, right? But if I give this to a two-year-old, he has a great deal of difficulty knowing that this is a clock. In fact, he probably thinks it's a building block. And he's going to try and build a little house if he can find something else to stick it on. He may think it's a ball and start throwing it around. Okay? So, that he sees the same thing you're seeing doesn't mean yet that his mind is interpreting it in the same way. The two-year-old's mind hasn't got the memory of clock. What's common is the seeing, though, isn't it? That's common, but the interpreting isn't. Yeah. And the seeing is only shape and color. So it's not the mind that sees. No. It's the eye that sees and the mind that interprets. And this is a very interesting exercise, particularly, first of all, knowing... You see, the Buddha always um, advocated this analysis to see how these things fit together, how we are not one complete mass and one whole, but how this all happens in sequence. Because it also diminishes our 
I meet delusion somewhat when, when we see how it happens in sequence. Okay, so that's mind externally the way I'm using it, and I find that a, a good um, practice, an exercise to do to get a little more knowledge about oneself, how this happens, huh? Well, I, yes. um, after that mental formation or the reaction to the leap, I like it or I don't like it, then how does sense consciousness then happen? That's the first thing that happened. That was the sense contact, the seeing. Oh, that, that's the first one. Yes. First comes the seeing itself. Or the that's right. Or else he abides contemplating in the mind its arising factors, or he abides contemplating in the mind its vanishing factors, or contemplating both arising and vanishing, which again gives us, brings us back to impermanence, how all our mind states come and go. Now, again, this makes us an objective observer of mind states. As long as we are an objective observer of our mind states, we do not have to be the experiencer of it. In other words, if there is dukkha in the mind, if there is any kind of unhappiness, any worry, any um, fear, any um, anxiety, and we are observing that, being the observer takes us out of being the anxiety person. So that brings us to the, um, helps us to have equanimity and also the observation of the arising and ceasing shows us that it ceases right then and there. Otherwise, we can't observe the ceasing. It ceases right then and there. The whole thing falls apart because we are an objective observer. To be an objective observer of one's own mind is, of course, not as easy as it sounds. It's very simply explained. And why isn't it easy? Because we think it's our own mind. We own it. And that's why we suffer. Mindfulness will take us out of that. The objective observation of mind states will show us that you don't own it. It is just a rising and ceasing. If we were to own it, we certainly would never make it a being unhappy, would we? Foolish, wouldn't it? And then, of course, there's the other possibility, as just as the same as there was with body and feeling, or else mindfulness that there is a mind is simply established in him to the extent of their knowledge and remembrance of it, while he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how Bhikkhu abides contemplating the mind as mind. Abiding independent means that we do not react to the states, either states of mind or to the outer triggers which happen to us. Now objective. If we are objectively watching, then we can be independent. And abiding independent has connotation of meditation also, because the calm meditation, the meditative absorptions, 
make us independent of worldly pleasures and also worldly pains because we are able to let the mind rest without the thinking process. But it also has the connotation of knowing there is a mind which is arising and ceasing with its mind states, but we do not get involved in it. We don't own it, we do not identify. It's the identification process which brings us to the need illusion. We identifying with mind, feeling, body, and so on. We're also identifying with other things. We're identifying with either being male or female, <clears throat> young or old, pretty or ugly, uh, stupid or intelligent, rich or poor, and all the things in between. The more identifications we can find, the more of an ego support we have. And the, uh, as we will find out when we read about the five aggregates, uh, these uh, um, mind and feeling particularly are the identification processes which bring us to this, this is me. I'm thinking that. It's not you thinking that, so it's me thinking that, so it must be me. And yet, it arises and ceases. It never remains. So where's the me when the mind state has ceased? Has that also ceased? That's a very important uh, investigation. And But the first step is to realize that that is where the me arises from, from that ownership of mind and feeling. And once we have seen that, that that's where it arises from, we can also see the absurdity of it very soon. Any questions on that? We've had those three steps earlier with all the other with the other mindfulness steps. Um, first is the mindfulness of knowing in oneself what is arising. Then is the uh, impermanence, the arising and ceasing, and then is that there is such a thing as mind or as feeling or as body, hmm? those three. So this is the um, uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness is Dhammanupasana. Now the word Dhamma, as I think I have mentioned before, is a word which is often used in different um, meanings. When it's spelled with a small d, it means phenomena of factors. Now, here in this sutta, as it's well known by everyone who's ever read this sutta, the dhammas, the factors, are particularly described. They're described as the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six bases, the seven enlightenment factors, the four noble truths, as the, uh, as the factors which can arise in the mind. Now, Obviously, in order to notice that, one has to know those things by heart. One has to know the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the seven enlightenment factors, the six bases, and the four noble truths all by heart. In other words, one cannot possibly know which one of those dhammas is arising, right? Well, very few people do in this day and age. Maybe in the time of the Buddha, they all knew it by heart. 
today it's usually only the teachers that know this thing by heart because they've got to. So, <laughs> so what do we do about this? The Dhammanupasana is content of mind. Okay? So the first, the former one, the one before this, the mind states, right, are the states of mind. Greed, hate, delusion, contraction, uh, distraction, exalted, surpassed, ordinary, um, concentrated, unconcentrated, states of mind, right? Now, now comes content of mind. And content of mind is very much concerned with the labeling process. And this is why I keep saying, all right, if the mind state, if, if you're in your meditation, your mind is being distracted, and it has impact. In other words, it stays distracted for some time, not just a fleeting like a cloud, but it is a bit of an impact there. Label. Because that's the only way you'll ever know what is Dhammanupasana, what is the content of mind in daily living. Now, I don't expect people to know these things by heart. If they do, that's great. I'm perfect, very happy if people know these things by heart. But labeling will give one the possibility to know whether there has arisen a state of agitation and the content of agitation, of fear, whether there is a uh, content in the mind of uh, grasping and clinging and craving, or whether there's a content in the mind of giving, of um, um, mindfulness, of um, being um, generous, of lovingness. Those things one does know through the labeling process. Now, as the labeling process in the meditation has been well established, and again, though, don't use it if the mind is concentrated. Please don't interrupt the concentration. But if it isn't concentrated, use it. Then it is very easy to do that in daily living. And as we see ourselves in daily living, having a mind which is full of dislike, rejection, worry, we'll know very soon that that is not a good state to continue and we'll learn to substitute. And this is the thing that we learn in the meditation. By labeling and knowing the state that the mind has, the content, we substitute with the breath. In daily living, we substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. That clear? Quite clear? No problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. The Buddha is saying there, that all the content of mind can be analyzed under all those headings. Yes, mm. Mm. particularly, yes, particularly those headings, mm. yes. That's quite so. But again, people, people don't know those things, yes. Yes, yes, the factor of the mind, yes. What the mind has, is doing, yes. I'm using the word content because it makes it clearer. But um, many factors come together. Yes, yes, it is content. 
Yes, yes, you can. Uh, you can have an unconcentrated state of mind and no particular content in it. It's just woozy. It's, uh, you know, foggy. But it just doesn't have any particular content in it. Just the mind state of fogginess. But these are contents, actual content in the mind. Actually something you can say actually more solid than just the mind state. Something you really can put your finger on. Particularly having practiced the labeling in the meditation, you can really put your finger on, aha. Here I am now really lusting after some sensual pleasure. I want to get something nice to eat. Well, that's a content. That's a really solid content. That's, that's one can be. So we have okay. I'll I'll just read this out then, because we won't have enough time to talk about the five hindrances. See, the five hindrances are a very important aspect of the teaching. They are um, a consolidation of the difficulties which beset us um, under five headings. You can probably make some uh, subtitles also. You know, we're going to make several subtitles for it. But these five headings are a consolidation of the difficulties. Here a bhikkhu abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the five hindrances. He's, uh, the translator means uh, they are not obstacles, they are more hedges. Well, what's the difference between a hedge and an obstacle? An obstacle is something you've got to jump over, and a hedge you've got to cut down. Huh? <laughs> I don't quite see the, the uh, essential difference in it. That block the way, hedges that keep you. Ah, yes, I see what he's talking about. They, they keep you in the traffic stream of lust, hate, and delusion, and they're not an obstacle that blocks the way. Well, they're both, of course. Um, how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas in terms of the five hindrances? Here, there being desire for sensual pleasures in him, a bhikkhu understands there is desire for sensual pleasure in me, or there being no desire for sensual pleasures in him, he understands there's no desire for sensual pleasure in me. And also he understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen desire for sensual pleasures, and he understands how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen desire for sensual pleasures. And he understands how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned desire, of abandoned desire for sensual pleasures. I thought English was a really easy language. <laughs> it's a little difficult, no? So, um, um, this same thing holds true for the other four. Ill will, lethargy and drowsiness, agitation and worry, and the fifth one he's calling uncertainty is mostly called skeptical doubt, but uncertainty is a very good word also. It's a very um, um, clear explanation also of what goes on in the mind, an uncertain mind without direction. So, a bhikkhu knows when there is a desire for sensual pleasure, and he also knows when there's no desire for sensual pleasure. Well, 
I think we can tell that in ourselves if we pay attention. And this is a very important aspect of our attention. Because the more we are looking for sensual pleasure, the less we're on the path. It's not that there's anything bad about this, but sensual pleasure distracts us from the actual understanding that they are so fleeting and so um, unsatisfying that they are always just a substitute to get rid of a little bit of dukkha for a very short period of time. So it's very important to know when we are desiring sensual pleasure and also knowing that we're not desiring it. When we know that we're not desiring it, um, that there are certain sensual pleasures, for instance, that we may have given up already because they're no longer interesting to us, we can feel that we have progressed along a certain path already. There are certain things we might have wanted to do in past uh, years were really important to us and we're no longer interested. But there are other things that we're really craving to do. So we can look at that and see if it's necessary. And um, now there is also this mindfulness of how does this unarisen desire arise? How does the desire arise which wasn't there before? Now the obvious thing how it arises is when we have sense contact. We either see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell it or think it. So the best thing to do is to do neither of those. <laughs> if it arouses a desire, if the thinking about a certain thing arouses a desire, it's best not to think about it. I mean, it's very simple, very simple. Let's say you're on a fast and you start thinking about food. What are you going to do? Go to the fridge and get some eventually. It's best not to think about it. It's best not to smell it. It's best not to touch it. It's best not to look at it. All of those things will arise, arouse the desire for it. A very, very simple and I think quite telling explanation how we can protect ourselves from unarisen desire. Now this is a particular situation when one is fasting, but there are other things which are we desire because they happen to come within our sense contact and which are totally unnecessary to desire. And they only bring about two possibilities. One is unrest and um, lack of quiet because we want something that we haven't got. So we've got to go after it. And the second thing that it brings about is disappointment because it doesn't uh, supply what we were looking for, complete satisfaction. And um, also, it keeps us within that stream of the marketplace where those desires, the gratification of those desires is possible. Whereas without that outside of it, those ordinary desires um, have no meaning. They're meaningless. 
So he understands how there comes to be abandoning of a risen desire for sensual pleasure and how comes to be the future non-arising of abandon. What is that? The future non-arising of abandoned desire. I'm afraid I don't quite get it. What is that? They understand how there comes to be, okay, the future non-arising of abandoned desire. Oh, well, why don't they say total uprooting? That would be very nice. <laughs> that would be easier. Um, well, the first thing was that the... Um, the abandoning of the arisen desire. Now that is another thing that we have to get clear in the mind. How do we abandon it? Once the desire has arisen, how do we abandon it? And if we have abandoned it, how did we do it so we can do it again? Well, there are many factors involved. One of the factors is that uh, the desire which has arisen, arisen, even if it is gratified, will not bring satisfaction. The desire itself brings unhappiness. The um, um, desire itself is already showing that there is dissatisfaction within, otherwise there couldn't be a desire. There are many mental factors which could help us to abandon the arisen desire. It's much easier not to let the desire arise than it is to abandon the one that has already arisen. And the way to, to not let the desire arise is to guard the sense doors. Guarding the sense doors. We've got six of them. And guarding them is the way not to let the desire arise. The Buddha called the desire for sensual gratification being in debt because we have to keep on paying off over and over again because we cannot ever get the gratification for essential desire to remain with us it has to be gratified over and over again and uh, he compared it with a water pond in which many different colors are thrown so that one cannot see one's likeness if one is overcome with desire, one can't see anymore the um, um, truth behind it. Now desire does not necessarily have to be something great, like uh, being, uh, doesn't have to be, the, the strongest one is sexual, but it doesn't have to be sexual desire. It doesn't even have to be desire for fame and fortune. It doesn't have to be any of that. It can be the smallest thing which is um, making us uh, restless because we haven't got it. So if we can see the restlessness which arises from unfulfilled desire, instead of trying to fulfill it, we could try and drop it. To know the five hindrances by heart and check oneself against those five is very valid and very valuable. 
because they are the the great disturbance. They do disturb us, and it is not always easy to know that this is what's happening, because particularly with sensual desire, it is sanctioned by society. The more desire we can gratify, the more successful we are supposed to be. Society sanctions that, and since everybody's doing it and everybody is supposedly happy with getting their sensual desires gratified, it is sometimes very difficult to see in ourselves that we are actually going away towards, going a pathway uh, towards the, an ultimate unhappiness. The essential desire, sorry, essential desire does not stop with old age and uh, even on the deathbed. And if one doesn't do something about it at the appropriate time, one is um, due for a very unhappy uh, situation. Young people can gratify their sensual desires more easily. And also, they have a, um, more of a, more possibilities for that. But if one doesn't see that that gratification is nothing but a very momentary affair and never satisfying, it does never bring that ultimate satisfaction within, one doesn't, um, and doesn't do anything about it, one isn't able to stop it ever. It's like paying a debt which is never paid off. I'm not going to talk about the rest of them because we, it's going to take too long, but I will talk about them tomorrow. However, I will say one more thing about sensual desire. It's very um, interesting uh, aspect, at least I think so, that these five hindrances have um, the uh, counteraction in the five factors of the first meditative absorption. The five hindrances are all have their automatic remedy in the five factors of the first absorption. That remedy is, of course, only during the meditation. However, the more often one does it, the more one undercuts the strengths of those hindrances. The um, constant and repeated um, remedy will eventually make those hindrances weaker and weaker so that one day we are able to uproot them. The uprooting comes through insight, but the weakening comes through the meditative absorptions. The sensual desire is counteracted through one-pointedness, which happens to be the fifth one of the five factors of the first meditative absorption. Now, one-pointedness, ekagata, 
means that the mind obviously has to stay in one place when there is a meditative um, um, concentration. The mind has to be one-pointed. So at that time, when the mind is one-pointed, it cannot possibly have sensual desire. In other words, it can't be looking for, isn't it time for lunch yet, or um, it's too cold, or it's too warm, or I'm not sitting uh, nicely, maybe I could get another cushion. Uh, it's none of that. It's one-pointed, absorbed. And because we do it more and more often, become more and more often one-pointedly absorbed, and thereby counteract all sensual desires, we also learn through our the absorptions that the results of the absorptions are far superior to any gratification of sensual desire. So not only do we get through that one-pointedness an automatic purification system, but we also have the personal experience that the gratification of sensual desire does not compare in any manner or form to that which is available through the meditation, uh, meditative absorption. And that very first one of the hindrances then has as its um, uh, remedy the fifth one of the five factors. That particular factor, that fifth one, stays with us in all the absorptions. The other four um, gradually are um, eliminated or substituted. However, the fifth one, the one-pointedness, stays through all the absorptions of which there are eight. So you can see that the more we do the meditative absorptions, we have a strong purification system for sensual desire. And sensual desire, of course, also includes sexual desire, and um, because that is a sensual desire, but it includes every wanting, everything what the mind wants to accumulate, where it thinks that outside things will um, enlarge happiness, no matter what it is even small things. And because the one-pointedness is the uh, underlying factor, not only of the first one, but of all eight, because without one-pointedness there is no absorption, we have a very strong um, uh, medicine for essential desire. Okay, any questions? Equanimity is one-pointedness. Uh, yes, well, equanimity is a word that we substitute for that. But the one-pointedness has to be part of every absorption. Whereas uh, even, I mean, if, uh, equanimity is the feeling which arises. The one-pointedness is the um, action of the mind. What are the other four factors like one I'll get to them when I, when I get to the hindrances. As the hindrances get each factor, I'll put the matching factor to the hindrance. Okay? Because now we've only talked about the first one. Right? And the other four, I've put a matching one to it. 
that you've got them together. Yes, yes, you could say like that, certainly. Yes. Although I would say that when the body feels good, the ego also feels a bit better. It feels a little supported. You know, have a little hot water bottle or an extra mm -hmm. pillow under your head or that type of thing, you know. And so the ego feels, oh yes, I'm looked after, you know. But primarily, you're quite right. Uh, we do look for the bodily comfort and we do f look for the uh, ego support, which not, does not necessarily have to include bodily comfort. So what I'm saying is that the bodily comfort will include the ego comfort, but the ego comfort does not necessarily have to include the body comfort, because you can have that ego uh, support by just talking to somebody or, you know, having a conversation or something like that. Sorry? Uh, yes, certainly. <laughs> Particularly the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the first one, the body concept. Hmm? But then I again, um, I mean, as you're saying, if you talk to somebody, you feel better. And uh, you may, you may not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, if, then that can be reflected in the body too, because then if you're feeling better, the, the body can relax. Oh, yes, but you were looking, you weren't looking for the body comfort. No. You were looking for the ego support and uh, the ego maintenance, and that you then have the result of that, that you feel a little more relaxed, yes. But what you, in the first instance, you would be looking for body comfort, you know, and uh, in the second instance for that, the desire for the body comfort, desire for the ego um, support thing. They, they do, certainly, the body and mind, while they are two, are interdependent. There's no question about it. Uh, the mind gives the orders, and the body has to follow suit if it can. But, of course, you see, if the body is uh, feeling good and uh, comfortable, and particularly an untrained mind, uh, then feels all right, or vice versa. And uh, if the uh, mind is at ease, well, obviously the body can relax. And so the, the most and more important thing is, of course, the mind. But we, we do not have that particular ability yet, so we do react to our body. But it's right what uh, Steve is saying, that we are looking for those two, we have those two desires, body and uh, mind desires, both to keep them nice and looked after. That's why we like to talk to people who are uh, supporters and are nice to us. We don't like to talk to people who tell us the truth about ourselves. <laughs> Anything else about any of this? This particular sutta contains such a wealth of stuff that it's an, enough for a whole month, isn't it? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't answer. 
I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think uh, in some manner or form, uh, Christianity has sometimes managed to think of sexuality as sin. Um, you know, original sin, that type of thing, you know. Um, but I think this is symbolic. I think it's been misinterpreted. I think that's a great misinterpretation because you see, original sin in the Buddha's interpretation is avidya, which is um, uh, ignorance. It's a non-knowing. And uh, original sin doesn't have to be sexuality. It's a non-knowing that we are not what we think we are. And um, sexuality is a desire which springs from that non-knowing. So the whole interpretation, I think, has been too simplified so that you can't relate to that anymore properly. The Buddha talks about sensual desire as not being a very good thing, right? But doesn't call it sin, doesn't call it original sin or any sin whatsoever. It just says, well, you know, it's not going to satisfy you in the long run, but find out for yourself. So um, I don't know that... The, I think the the symbolism in Christian teaching has been mislaid somewhere along the line. And that's why we find uh, uh, explanations which are not satisfying very often. I think if we go deeper into it, we can find a much more satisfying understanding. Um, Sorry? Uh, do they say that? Are you asking me? Um, well, no, neither one of them says that. But Christianity says, as you sow, you will reap. And uh, the Buddha says, uh, karma has results, which is identical. You don't get punished. Uh, there's nobody there to be punished anyway. Uh, you get results. And they can be uh, pleasant or unpleasant. So um, if you want to uh, prevent unpleasant results, well, find out how you can make good karma to get good results. And that's all. So if you consider that a punishment, yes, of course, it's an interpretation. But actually what it is is cause and effect. And both of them say exactly the same thing. In this particular instance, they, they're practically using the same language. A little more um, um, colorful, actually, in Christianity, as you saw you were reading. So I was talking about symbolism and like getting lost. Um, what about um, the Buddhist um, um, talk of hell and the Christian talk of hell? I mean, is that a symbolism for negative mindsets in your understanding? Uh, yes, not only in mine. Um, there are many inter uh, interpreters, um, Buddha Dasa being one of them. I just happened to know that because I just read it today. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a very well-known monk in Thailand. Uh, that are interpreting the cosmology of the Buddha's teaching of the 31 realms of existence as mind states, uh, states of consciousness. And I think that we could um, very well relate to that. In fact, I relate to that personally. Because even as a human being, 
we know states of mind which are like hell. In fact, we had a visitor here two days ago who said, my last two years were like hell. Mm -hmm. Well, were his mind states, obviously. He wasn't living in any particular um, thing that was, um, you know, giving him hell. His mind states were hell. Um, but we know other states of mind also of people who were in, in health states. Uh, we know animal states, uh, utter greed of, of people. We know the states of um, exalted states where we have uh, great love and compassion and no negativity at all. So I would say that we can say that there are 31, the Buddha describes 31 states of existence the lowest being hell, uh, which are states of consciousness. But you must also remember that states of consciousness are the cause for the type of body one has. So the states of consciousness also create different kinds of bodies. In some instances, no bodies at all anymore, only mind states. So that too arises which goes with it. So there's that, that too, but they are primarily states of consciousness, yes. And I dare say that one can interpret the Christian teaching in the same way. I don't know. I mean, I haven't uh, tried to do that, but uh, it uh, stands to reason that would be possible also. I think I even had a conversation one day. I don't know what, whether it is one to interpret it. So would that, would that mean that if you lived a really kind of wretched and mean life, that you would, your rebirth would be as a kind of wretched, miserable person next time, rather than being born in a hell realm? Well, e either. Uh, you could be uh, uh, born as a wretched and mean person, yes, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be very natural to happen. Uh, a hell realm, uh, it could uh, conceivably be also a different type of body, which has uh, different experiences. I don't know. This is conjecture. It's certainly due to one's mind states. And that's why mindfulness of mind states is of the utmost importance. Mindfulness of our mind states and our mind content. The mind content is even easier, what we are talking about now. It's easier than mind state. Mind state is still more diffuse. It's more abstract. Mind content is solid. We know when we're getting angry. Who doesn't? We also know when we're loving. These are content of mind. And here we have been only talking about desire states. But desire states, if really watched, really watched, really watched desire states, you can see how much dukkha they produce. They produce nothing but dukkha. It's only when you let go that the dukkha goes. So that is uh, very, very um, important for our daily lives. And... Um, very important, of course, for our meditation also, because when we are distracted in meditation, it's um, most of the time because of desire. 
It's not necessarily that we want to get something to eat or anything like that. It's a desire to have the ego support. See, why is it so difficult to become concentrated? Because the ego doesn't have a support system and there's no thinking. So as soon as we drop that desire to have that, we are already a step ahead. Yeah. So we're saying that the ideal states would be the neutral states because they produce no karma and thereby not necessarily producing further existence. What are neutral states? The state where craving is Oh, at that moment, not not karma being produced. Well, <laughs> it's like this. As long as there's no enlightenment, we're always producing karma. Um, it may be very minor. The person, the human being who has become enlightened, has no me concept. Therefore, there's nobody there to produce karma. As long as we have a me concept, we are producing karma, even good karma. So if we have, for instance, a state of mind, which you just described as neutral, which uh, you then said would be a state without craving. Hmm? Okay. We still know that this was me having that. Okay, so we're making good karma. The making of karma only stops when the maker has stopped. Oh, definitely. <laughs> one wouldn't. Uh, not now. <laughs> as soon as we get finished with this Satipatthana Sutta, which we should eventually, um, we will have suttas that will um, show, and if I haven't chosen the right one, I will choose another one, which uh, will show the steps that take you to that point, which is the path and fruit moments. The path and fruit moments. The past moment, the first one, is the um, the first experience of nobody there. And having experienced that, that past moment, the fruit moment is the recognition of it, which is the understood experience. And the onus is on oneself. Okay, one can discuss it, one can... Uh, find the possibility of confirmation, but the onus is on oneself. And there are certain uh, criteria which are the same for everyone. So we'll discuss it at length outside of the Satipatthana. Okay? Right. Anything else? Yes? Um, about the absorption, um, when you get to that level, to the five tendencies, you can never come back with that the five hindrances disappear and never come back on enlightenment. They get 
cut down in their strength and diminished through the meditative absorption so that their uprooting becomes easier. As long as there are full strength within one, we haven't got a chance. They are just too strong for us. So we have to do, we have to um, work with them on two levels. One level is the meditative absorption, which cut down their strength. You can compare, or I, co- or I usually compare that to cutting down the weeds in your garden. You don't uproot them, but you cut them down so that eventually their weeds get so puny that you can easily pull them out. The other um, level on which we work with the hindrances is in daily living. Having understood what there is to be done, one also does it in daily life. One doesn't let the mind run riot in those hindrances. However, the uprooting, the total uprooting of all of them is for the Arahant. The first step, stream entry, does not even touch them yet. Greed and hate is not even touched in stream entry. And that's the first time of the experience of Nibbana. They're not touched yet. Can you imagine the greed and hate that's rampant in the world for people who don't even, haven't even heard about it? So the sooner one does something about it, the easier life becomes. They are making our lives difficult those hindrances. And they do it with a vengeance. And very few people in the world, considering the number of people who live in the world, are even aware of that. So we have a a work cut out for ourselves. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. And look into your heart and see if you can find any anger or ill will dislike, resistance, rejection, worry, fear, anxiety. If you find any of these, or anything else that's negative, 